0: from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. We've got two big topics to talk about today. We've got UGA's recruiting class. We're going to talk about where the dogs rank, who is coming in, who the names you need to know are, and then what position group is going to ultimately define the 2021 season for your Georgia Bulldogs. Then we're going to talk about Major League Baseball for the first time in 2021, we're a couple of weeks away from spring training. We need to talk a little bit about what's going on in and around the baseball off season in general with the tr- with the players union and the owners because that is gonna give us the context we need to talk about our Atlanta Braves and what they've done this off season as we prepare, like I said, later this month for pitchers and catchers to report and spring training to get started. It's still cold outside. But the thought of baseball warms my heart at least just a little bit. So that's what we're gonna talk about on the show today. Thank you so much for listening in, and I hope you enjoy it. So, one of the most positive things that has happened under Kirby Smart is Georgia has started to recruit at the level that everybody has always said they should be able to recruit at. Mark Rick had a couple of very impressive classes. And year after year, he would have a top 10 class. But as we'll see here in a few minutes, as we start talking about just the recruiting rankings and kind of comparing Georgia to some other teams, there's a big difference between being number one or number two or number three in the nation and then being number nine or number 10, uh, especially in the SEC. So uh, for this first little bit, we're going to talk about uh, the team rankings. And so, for that, I'm going to be using two four seven composite, so this is you know there's multiple uh services out there that that rank players and and then by that we'll rank recruiting classes so depending on if you're a rivals person or you know whatever you know e s p n Yahoo all these different people have different rankings, the composite ranking from two four seven is where I like to go because for the team rankings, that really gives you the overall look. Uh, who had the best class, and surprise, surprise, the uh, the national champion, Alabama, Crimson Tide, had the best class in the country. Number two was Ohio State, surprise, surprise, the team that they beat in the national championship game, and our Georgia Bulldog come in at number three, the third best team. This is the fourth straight year that Georgia has finished in the top three in recruiting under Kirby Smart. Finishing out the top five, you got LSU at four and Clemson at five. So a few other teams to kind of note just far as the team rankings go: Florida came in at thirteen, Tennessee came in at sixteen. Now I'm gonna put an asterisk beside that because the t- most of the Tennessee class came in back in December for the the early signing period, and at that point Jeremy Pruitt was still the coach at Tennessee. So you've got a lot of guys that signed with Tennessee who committed to Jeremy Pruitt. They could, as this year, kind of this this college football calendar rolls into the summer, I think you're going to see some of those recruits go other places. Uh, later this year, you should see the one-time uh, exemption allowing a player to transfer schools without having to sit out. I think you may see some incoming true freshmen in Tennessee decide, hey, you know what, I committed to Jeremy Pruitt and his staff. They're not here anymore. Uh, I'm going to go find somewhere else to play my college football. So, But Tennessee did come in at 16, and that's what they are right now. Missouri, uh, number 28. Auburn at 30. And when you see that, maybe you understand a little bit about why Gus is no longer the coach at Auburn. Kentucky came in at 32 the North Avenue Nerds at Tech came in at 47. Vanderbilt came in at 49 and dead last in the Southeastern Conference, your South Carolina Gamecocks 77th in the nation. So uh oh my, it's going to be some rough times at South Carolina over the next couple of years. So that was the composite score that we used for the team rankings from now on i am going to use rivals i like their individual rankings the reason at this point you have to kind of pinpoint a single ranking to use is because if you start talking you can you can have three number one quarterbacks if you uh, if you cite three different lists so we're going to use rivals rankings for the rest of this And, you know, the name that probably most of the people even listening to this podcast have already heard of is the quarterback, the five-star guy out of Prince Avenue, just right down the road here uh, from Athens. Five-star quarterback, 6'3", 198 pounds. He's a cheeseburger away from 200. Brock Vandergriff is is the star of this class from a kind of a notoriety standpoint. That's just the way the quarterback position is going to work. He is. According to Rivals, the number one quarterback in the nation and the number seven overall prospect this year. So a little context here. This is the fourth five-star quarterback that Kirby's had uh, in his time at Georgia. He kept Eason in his first class, that 2016 class, obviously brought Fromm in in 2017, Fields in 2018, and now Vandergriff in 2021. Um You could also recognize that next year's starter in JT Daniels is a five-star quarterback, also from that 2018 class. Um, Quarterback talent, this is something to really get our minds around. Quarterback talent has not been the issue at Georgia, but quarterback play and quarterback development has been a huge issue and probably the biggest reason at this point why Georgia is still in, in the middle of a national championship drought rather than going ahead and getting that title, it's the quarterback position. Now, I'm not going to pick a year and tell you that if we had a better quarterback, we'd have won in X year or Y year, but that's what the dogs have been missing, is is that big-time quarterback. A lot of people think Vandergriff is the guy. JT Daniels looked really good last year. I don't think there's any chance that Vandergriff is going to come in and play why, right away. He played uh, single a private here in Georgia, and the level of competition that he was going up against, week in and week out, just wasn't good enough, frankly, for him to be able to come in. You know, if you compare it to a guy, you know, like a like a Lawrence or a Fields or even a Fromm, those guys were playing at the the top levels, four A, five A, six A here in Georgia, where the competition is really, really high. And sometimes those guys, especially when they come in early, like Vanderbilt Griff did, sometimes those guys are ready to go in that first fall. But I just think there's going to be a bit of growth needed from Vandergriff, which is okay because Daniels is there, you know? So Vandergriff can be the backup this year, get in there, take a whole year and then be a red shirt freshman ready to go. And, you know, whether he plays or not, but basically, you know, he'll, he'll be ready to go as a sophomore or red shirt freshman, however they decide to do it. But, um, that's going to be one of the big names you should hear. Uh, Amarius Mims maybe is the name that you haven't heard yet that you need to know because he may end up being the actual crown jewel of this class. Six seven, seven, 300-pound offensive lineman, the number one player in the state of Georgia, the number four player in all the nation. There's a lot of five-star talent on the offensive line, four offensive linemen, four five-star offensive linemen, signed in the 2020 recruiting cycle after Sam Pittman left for the Dogs, So Georgia has an absolute ton of talent on the offensive line. And still, most people who are familiar with Georgia and who are familiar with uh, Amarius Mims think that Mims can start and probably will start as a true freshman despite all of that talent on the offensive line. He is being compared constantly to Andrew Thomas, who was, if you remember, the number four pick in the 2020 NFL draft play, uh, going to the Giants. So Amarius Mims is going to be a difference maker on the offensive line for the Dogs, and he's probably going to be a difference maker this year. Let's run through some other names. Um, So basically in this class, according to rivals, Georgia had two five-stars and then had 13 four-stars. So I'm not going to sit here and give you 13 four-star names, but a few guys to kind of keep an eye on, kind of the higher-end four-star guys. Michael Morris is a four-star offensive lineman, 6'5", 334. Woo! He's the number five player in the state, number 53. Uh, nationally, Xavier Sori, four-star linebacker, 6'3", 220, the number four linebacker in the nation, the number 52 overall player. Then, and we're going to kind of pivot here a little bit, we're going to talk about three cornerbacks that Georgia brought in in this class, David Daniel, four-star defensive back, Kamari Lasseter, a four-star, and then Nylon Green, a four-star cornerback from my alma mater, Newton High School, the number nine player in the state of Georgia, number 127 all uh, overall. Those guys are going to be incredibly important. And if you had listened to Kirby's press conference this week after signing day, he was very honest about the fact that, you know, Georgia addressed a lot of their needs. They feel good about their class. But maybe overall they don't feel great about the team. And that's because there is one glaring problem for the 2021 Georgia Bulldogs, and that is at cornerback. So, we're going to just listen to this list of guys who played corner last year who are no longer at Georgia. Tyson Campbell, Tyreek Stevenson, DJ Daniel, Mark Webb, and Eric Stokes. Your top five corners from, the la- from last year, and really from the last couple of years, are all gone. Campbell, and Stokes went to the NFL early. D.J. Daniel and Mark Repp graduated, and Tyreek Stevenson transferred to Miami. So Georgia was insanely deep at the cornerback position last year, but every single bit of that depth actually has left. And so what Georgia has coming back is not only inexperience, but young inexperience. So when you when you look at who is left, the returning quarterbacks you have Amir Speed who is a senior who is um not gotten on the field a whole lot. Then you, you have no juniors that really have an opportunity to, to contribute and then you have sophomores. And when I so as I am calling them sophomores right now enrolled at the University of Georgia, they are still freshmen because they are they were freshmen this past season. They were freshmen this past season without a normal off season without a normal weight program, without the ability to come in and if they came in early to be able to have spring practice in 2020 because of everything that happened with COVID last year. So Keeley Ringo, Jalen Kimber, and Major Burns are three guys who were insanely highly recruited and they have a ton of talent, but they they haven't played. You know, I made a list here of of all the guys that are just listed at defensive back, and a lot of them I wrote beside N H. O.H. No idea who he is. Now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't even know why I did that. You know, there's just a lot of question marks when you talk about the cornerback position. So it's gonna be a very, very big piece of this offseason. We're gonna talk about it a lot. And the reason we're gonna talk about it so much is because Georgia's first game next year is against Clemson. Now, the reality of the 2021 season is. The expectations are high. We've talked about that on the last episode. They are so high because when you look at the teams that Georgia will be playing in 2021, you don't really get very worried about a lot of the quarterbacks they're going to be playing, especially early in the season, knowing that this secondary is going to be an issue. However, that opening game, Clemson is there and so is DJ, and I'm going to say his name, it's probably not going to be right, but DJ La. Okay, now I've just got to give up and not even ever try that again. But we saw in the games that he played you know, against Boston College, we saw him play against Notre Dame. This kid can throw the ball all over the field, and Georgia in their first game with all of this inexperienced at cornerback is going to have to figure out how to survive, essentially, because – it seems almost impossible that these guys are going to be ready to play at the highest level that early in the season. So cornerback could be the deficient, the, the position that ultimately uh, dictates how well Georgia can play. Now, I can see Georgia next year at this point. Now, I guess I'm being a little bit of a homer right here, but okay, maybe DJ goes crazy and he beats Georgia. I don't think that would be a shock at this point. I could also then see Georgia turn around and win an 11 straight games to go in 11-1 and, and, and playing for the SEC championship. And I don't know what Alabama's quarterback situation or LSU or Texas A&M or anybody else, but when you play the best teams in the country, they are going to have great quarterbacks. And so if this cornerback position ends up being the Achilles heel for this team, it's going to affect Georgia, maybe not against the South Carolinas and the Tennessees of the world, but it's absolutely going to matter when it comes down to a potential playoff run because you don't run into teams in the college football playoff or even in the SEC championship games that don't have a quarterback. And if your corners can't hold up, you're not going to lose to the mediocre teams. You're not going to lose to, you're going to out-talent most guys or most teams, excuse me, but when those biggest moments and those biggest games, you're not going to be able to win. And and like I've already said, the expectation is not to make it back to Atlanta. It's not to make the college football playoff. The expectation next year is to win the national championship, period. And for Georgia to be able to do that, these cornerbacks, these three guys that I talked about earlier coming in in this class, the three guys that came in in last year's class, and hopefully uh, a grad transfer or two or three or six come in and really shore things up for Georgia because the cornerback position, even in February, is enough to keep you up at night. Moving on, let's talk about the Braves. So before we can really dig into what's going on in the Braves offseason, we have to talk about the fact that there is a lot of off the field. I mean, everything's off the field. It's the off season, but there's a lot of backroom conversation and a lot of posturing happening uh, in Major League Baseball right now. So the collective bargain agreement is up after the 2021 season. So the conversations and the negotiations and everything having to do with the renewal of the CBA has already started. And it started to affect the upcoming season. So a few weeks ago, the owners offered the players a 154-game season as opposed to 162. They wanted to delay the start of spring training. And, you know, obviously if you delay spring training, you're going to delay the regular season. And they wanted to expand the playoffs. So seven teams in each league would get in under this plan. So you would have the number one seed go straight into the divisional round and then you would have the two-out-of-three-game series that the Braves and the Reds played last year. Um, That would have been, so two plays six, three plays five, sorry, two plays seven, three three plays six, and four plays five, and that's the way that the the playoffs were run. Sorry, Uh, got a little confused there. So that was a part of the deal that was offered, and the universal DH was a part of the deal that was offered By the owners to the players. The players rejected it. There wasn't a lot of explanation given. um, That I could find. I mean there there were a couple of comments here and there. Saying that. um, That the players didn't think expanded playoffs. And Universal D8 should be tied to. The 154 game season. And the delay of the start of the season. So I think that kind of points to where the players are at. From just from a player's perspective. Last year the players felt that the owners drug things out way more than they should have during the summer. You know, everybody understands that the beginning of the pandemic in March, we were two and a half weeks away from the start of the regular season when everything shut down nationwide. And so I think from a player's perspective, they understand that, okay, we couldn't start in March or April or May or June, but by the time negotiations were going on in the middle of the summer, you had, the owners wanting a 60 game season. The players wanted to play as many games as they possibly could because the more games they got, they played, the more they would get paid because their salary was going to be prorated based on the amount of games played. So the owners started at 60. The player said, Well, why not 80? The owner said, How about 60? The player said, How about 72? The owner said, How about 60? <laughs> The players said, how about 70? And ultimately, as you know, we had a 60-game season. And so I think the, the players, right or wrong, they are not willing to budge one inch off of the 162-game schedule. And the reason that they don't want to give an inch there is they feel like in a month or a month and a half, if they delay spring training, which is supposed to start here in just a couple of weeks, they feel like the owners are going to come back and say, hey, it's still not safe. We need to delay again. And they feel like, whether it is or whether it's not, they feel like this is a ploy on the part of the owners to shorten the season again to save money. Because the owners, from their point of view, they want to have a season, but I don't know how many owners are really excited about playing in empty stadiums again. And so the owners kind of want to wait as much as they possibly can to try to see if you can get fans in the stands, which is obviously increased revenue for the owners. You know, you're talking about parking, you're talking about concessions, you're talking about merchandise, all of the things that the owners missed out on completely last year with not being able to have fans, those, I mean, every dollar you make there is better than it was last year. So the owners are trying to kind of slow play it because they're saving money on player salaries by by playing less games and they're making money with the potential of being able to pull people into the stadiums, even if it's a 20% capacity or 25% capacity, or even if it's city to city. Right now, there's not any real, you know, the NFL finished up. They, the NFL ended up having some cities had uh, fans in the stands, you know, at certain uh, percentages and stuff. There's going to be about 20,000 people at the Super Bowl this weekend. But, the The owners, that, that's their ploy. For the players, they just feel like what happened last year, they lost, okay? I mean, the, the players absolutely lost last year. I mean, it was a pandemic, so nobody's going to feel sorry for them. But at the end of the day, the owners decided how many games they were going to play. That's how many games got played. So the the players don't feel like they can really negotiate a whole lot on this. So the reason we're talking about all this is – the 154-game season and the delay to spring training and the start of the season was kind of the foundational pieces of this offer. But the expanded playoffs and the universal DH were, were tied to it, and the players rejected all of it. And so for right now, it seems like there will be no universal DH, in the na- so no DH in the National League this year. And we will go back to having the normal uh, playoff structure where you have the three division winners from each uh, league get in, and then uh two wild card teams and the two wild card teams would play each other, and the winner would play the number one seed and then we'd be off to the races as far as the playoffs go. so we'll see if something changes i mean in baseball, what we've seen is as much as they try to make a big deal out of you know the integrity of the game and how you know everything has to be negotiated, I wouldn't be surprised even if we get into like three four weeks into spring training, and then all of a sudden there's a deal on the universal d h or playoff expansion or something um, the playoff expansion in particular is beneficial to the players because it takes from ten playoff teams to fourteen and there's compensation for that you know that's four there's four more teams that make the playoffs that's twenty five guys on every single one of those four teams so a hundred players in the league that will get playoff bonuses and playoff money uh if if more teams make the playoffs so That's a good deal for the players, and the universal DH is a good deal for everybody. So the problem that we have, I mean, this is – there's no reason in this world why pitchers should be hitting in 2021. So I have gone – and I've talked about this on the podcast – I have gone 180 degrees on the DH in the National League. Years ago, I mean, I, I grew up a Braves fan, so a National League fan, and I've always appreciated the strategy that comes along with pitchers hitting. But, to be honest, my formative years were in the 90s when you had pitchers like Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, who took pride in their ability to, to, to get a hit every once in a while, but more than anything took pride in their ability to lay down a sacrifice bunt. It was an art form for them, and if you watch the Braves in the mid to late 90s and even the early 2000s, the commentators would talk all the time about how much the Braves pitchers would practice laying down bunts, and during the '18 season, when the Braves really started you know, coming back to be a relevant team, and, and it was worth, for me, with young kids and everything, it was worth watching a lot of baseball, that was the part that just I mean it shocked me how bad not only how bad the hitter the pitchers are when it came to hitting in general but how terrible they were at trying to sacrifice bunt because that is a part of the game in the national league when you don't have the DH. So obviously in 2020 with the pandemic, the shortened season, they decided to to go with the DH and I really enjoyed watching baseball without the pitchers hitting. It changed the dynamic when it comes to the middle innings of a baseball game in the National League because you didn't have to worry about, you know, if you've got a pitcher who's pitching well, you that was the only factor about whether or not you left them in the game is how they were pitching. There was no, okay, but we're down a run and there's a runner on first. I need to go ahead and pitch hit for Mike Soroka in the fifth inning because I need to go ahead and get this run across. That was – I mean, there's strategy to that, and I guess if you're just a baseball purist, maybe you enjoy the fact that a manager has to make that decision and that there's a trade-off there. But for me, they're called pitchers. (laughs) Pitching is their primary objective, and to have something so secondary for their role on the team as hitting be the reason that they can't do their primary job, pitching. It it just gets in my head, and and I just I can't stand it. And I think the the complete and utter lack of ability for the pitchers to be viable at the plate at all is what led me to just really enjoying the twenty twenty season. Now I mentioned earlier that the CBA is up after this season. It is universally, no pun intended. It's universally known that there will not be a the or they will not be any question about whether or not the universal DH will be in place for the 2022 season. um, That is something that the players are going to ask for. It seems like something that the owners are fine to give them. Um, It's probably going to come with a a bit of a roster expansion. That's why the players are going to be so excited about it is you're essentially going to add a, instead of 25, maybe it goes to 26. It went to 26 last year. Maybe it goes to 27. So again, that's 30 more, Baseball players that are being paid, you know, at least the league minimum when you you add players to teams, So the idea that the pitcher sucked at hitting in 2019, they didn't hit it all in 2020. They're not going to be hitting in 2022. But for 2021, we're going to roll them out there and expect anything to be good about it. I mean, you know, you're talking about an added level of a risk of injury. You know, the Braves in particular, you know, there's reports this week that if without the universal DH in the National League, that the Braves may have to go a little slower with Mike Soroka. He may not be able to come back and pitch as much if he's going to have to go out there and run the bases on that Achilles that is still trying to heal. So just the fact that those kind of things, obviously that's a Braves fans, a selfish Braves fans kind of perspective there. But the fact that teams are going to have to factor in not whether or not Mike Soroka can go out there and pitch and field his position, but on the off chance that he gets walked, if he's going to have to run to second or run to third, is he healthy enough to do that? It's just ridiculous. And 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 on both sides, everybody just needs to come to the table and not make this bigger than it needs to be. This is so simple, you know. If if you don't want to expand the playoffs this year, fine. I, I that is a that to me is more of a true collective bargaining piece. But there's no part of the game that makes sense for having these pitchers hit in 2021 when they didn't last year. They won't be next year. But then we're all just going to pretend like, well, we couldn't work out labor negotiations. Everything doesn't have to be about the labor negotiations. This can just be good. This is better for the game. It's better for the owners because it's more entertaining. It's better for the players because you don't have pitchers going out there trying to do something they suck at anyway. It's just better. So why in the world the two sides couldn't just put their egos aside long enough to be able to decide, hey, you know what? This is a better product, and this is what we need to do, and this is what we're going to end up doing anyway, so let's just go ahead and do it. Everything is going to, you know, baseball labor negotiations being active, it's the height of silly season. So you just don't know. I still believe that they're going to figure it out and that they will come to an, an agreement on that, um, on, at least on the universal DH. I don't think the playoffs will expand this year, but with the universal DH, they're going to figure it out. I think. Now, going back to the owner's original proposal of delaying the season, I am a little confused as to why this is a thing. And and reports came in on Thursday that there was pressure from lawmakers even maybe conversations that was being had between the Players Union and the White House about delaying the start of spring training and delaying the start of the season. Now, I'm not getting political here. I just, to me, I don't quite understand why baseball is being affected this way. And so if you listen to this and you have an answer for me, please give it to me because I'm I'm genuinely asking. The NBA is actively playing. The NHL is actively playing. Major League Soccer is going to start their season here in just a few weeks. The NFL, the Super Bowl is this weekend. So the NFL just finished their season and even had some fans in the stands. So why is this different for baseball? Why is baseball spring training and the start of the baseball season any different than the active major league or the the active NHL or NBA season? They're, they're they're not in the bubble neither one they're they're going place to they city to city they're playing games like there's testing involved you know obviously the rollout of the vaccine is actively happening nationwide i just don't understand it and so it may just be the owners trying to slow down the spring training to increase the likelihood that we can get fans in there or maybe they're using political influence to get that but all of a sudden it seems like there's this narrative that other sports are playing but it's too dangerous for baseball. And again, I, I just feel like it's the height of sissy, silly season when you start talking about labor negotiations because maybe there is a logical reason. I just can't think of it. And it just feels like another tool that the owners are trying to use to try to delay the start of the season to get fans in the stand. So we say all of that because you need that context before we move into our next segment here. And we're gonna talk specifically about what's going on with the Braves and what they've done this off season. So now that we've talked a little bit about what's going on with Major League Baseball as a whole, let's focus in on the Braves. Over the last couple years, as Alex Anthopoulos has been the general manager for the Braves, the M.O. for the Braves has been to make an early splash kind of in the free agent window, first week or two, and then go silent for the majority of the offseason. You know, last year, the Braves moved pretty slowly. All the way around, I think they made the Cole Hamels deal kind of early. We'll get to that in a minute, but it was late because they continued to talk to Josh Donaldson a little bit and and, and to see where things were going to go with that. So the Azuna deal happened pretty late in the uh, and kind of in the the spring training build up last year. So the fact that we're this close to spring training, within two weeks now before spring training starts, and there's still some questions, isn't necessarily. Um, out of character for Alex Anthopoulos. He's always trying to get those late uh, winter bargains, it seems like. But the Braves did take uh, make two moves early in the offseason, which is, again, what they've done kind of consistently. So Charlie Morton, who was with the Braves, I don't know, 100 years ago, uh, is coming back. So he is this year's old pitcher that is brought in for his experience for a decent amount of money award winner, essentially. Um, the difference in Morton than you know maybe Cole Hamills uh, is that from 2017-2019, Morton's won forty five games and had an ERA of under four. So even though he is thirty seven and he kind of fits that an older guy kind of bring brought in at the end of his career for a lot of money, which all of those things are true. He's thirty seven and he's been in the big league since two thousand eight, but he only has about fourteen hundred innings pitched in his career and that's relatively low for somebody that's been in the MLB as long as as he has so just as a a point of reference 1400 innings pitched coming into the season for Charlie Morton this year last year Cole Hamels uh, had 2695 so nearly 2700 innings pitched in his career and he so, basically, he had about twice as much wear and tear on his body. Morton pitched a career-high 194 innings in 2019. And if you notice, I'm not talking a whole lot about 2020. It wasn't because Morton was so bad. It's just it's really hard in the 60-game season to really, you know, you, you, when you're talking about innings pitched, it doesn't matter how many innings he pitched last year. When you're talking about a, re, a record from last year, it doesn't matter. He only probably had eight or nine starts. So, you know, uh, all of this to say that that while it does seem like, it, from a perception standpoint, it might seem that Charlie Morton, oh, he's just this year's Cole Hamels, it's really a much different situation. And all the indicators for Morton point to him making a, a much bigger impact than Cole Hamels did last year. So in doing some research and kind of throwing all this together, I want to give you one last Cole Hamels nugget. That will just get under your skin and make you go crazy. So Hamill's pitched three point one innings in twenty twenty for the Braves. He made that one start late in the season. Afterward, said he felt good. After that, he said, "Man, maybe I don't feel so much good." And he never made another start. So his pro-rated salary was the most appropriate pro-rated salary you could ever have. So over last year's hundred and sixty game or sorry sixty game season. His prorated salary was $6.66 Now let's just let that sink in for a second. But uh, So he pitched 3.1 innings, which means he got $666,000 per out recorded last year. Just to kind of put that into some context, had Max Freed made $666,000 per out recorded, he would have made it, he would have made $111 million last year in his 60 game pro rated season. So, um, Cole Hamels, biggest waste of money the Braves have ever had. And yes, that is more, uh, than BJ Upton, Dan Ogla or Mike Hampton. Uh, thank you so much, Cole Hamels. We wish you to step on as many Legos as you can find over the rest of your life. Um, So the big signing that the Braves had was Charlie Morton, who I think will really fit in well and be a contributor for the starting rotation. The other guy they signed, uh, his name is Drew Smiley with two Ys, Um, S-M-Y-L-Y. So I'm going to call him Drew Smiley with two Ys because I think that's weird. Um, He is a below average MLB pitcher who had a small uptick in velocity last year. So. Drew Smiley with two eyes is exactly why, if you have young children right now, you need to teach them how to throw a baseball. You need to teach them how to pitch. Because in his career, Drew Smiley is 35-35 and 35 with a 4.13 ERA, and he just signed a contract for one year, $11 million with the Atlanta Braves. One year, $11 million because he picked up a couple of miles per hour on his fastball last year and because he doesn't have a losing record. He is exactly 500. So, hey, you can't you, you can't fault him for signing the contract, but it makes you wonder a little bit uh, about some of the things we're going to talk about in the next few minutes about when well, we're talking about dollars with the Braves and how it seems like sometimes they aren't big spenders. If you have 11 million dollars for Drew Smiley with two Ys, it feels like you should have money for some other guys. We'll get to that in a second, but let's let's just kind of an overview of what the rotation looks like. So you can go ahead and plug in three guys, in my opinion. You got Max Fried, you got Ian Anderson, you got Charlie Morton. Now, obviously, Mike Soroka is going to be in the rotation. The question is, with Soroka, when is he back? You know, he was throwing. He, he has been on social media kind of being very optimistic about his timeline. The Braves are one of the more conservative teams when it comes to injury, so I think most Braves fans thought maybe May. The pessimistic slash realistic Braves fans think maybe June. Um, We'll just have to wait and see how he is progressing, but the Braves are not going to take any chances whatsoever. So basically, is going to make his first start probably two weeks after he was actually ready to make it, whether that's May, June, whatever. So, Without Soroka, you need two guys, and the top three people that will take those spots are Kyle Wright, who pitched fairly well during the regular season, uh, and even in his first playoff start last year, pitched well, and then obviously got absolutely shellacked by the Dodgers in the uh, NLCS. Bryce Wilson, who we didn't see pitch a whole lot during the regular season last year, but pitched like a man possessed in the NLCS against the Dodgers. And then the aforementioned $11 million Drew Smiley with two Ys. So two of those guys are probably going to be in the season opening rotation, in the starting five at the beginning of the season. And really, when you think long term, hopefully, if everybody stays healthy, by the time you get to June, July, the bulk of the season, Max Fried, Ian Anderson, Charlie Morton, and Mike Soroka are four of your five. With Smiley, Wright, or Wilson, filling in in that fifth spot, or, you know, it, it's a long baseball season. Five five starters is never enough, so I think the Braves going in with seven, you feel pretty good, and that doesn't even include guys like Tukey Tassant, Patrick Weigel, Sean Newcomb, and Hector Yona, who all, at some point in the last couple of years, have... Been starting pitchers for the Braves, so the starting pitching depth is there. The talent is very much there at the top end. I still like, despite what happened with Kyle Wright in the playoffs, I still feel good about Kyle Wright. Bryce Wilson was surprising. It, it you know, to me. Maybe what he did in Game 4 last year is like a, wow, that's what this guy can be, and he will have that same aggressive, I mean, he just looked like, you know, he looked like a bulldog out there, just being very aggressive, and he 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 looked completely up to the moment, obviously, whether or not he can replicate that every five days during the Major League Baseball season, that's what we're going to find out, but I still feel really good about Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson, um, so I feel like the Braves will have what they need when it comes to the starting rotation as much as anybody does. Um, Most of that bullpen debt from last year is still intact as well, although we did lose Shane Green and Mark Melanson to free agency. Now, both are still unsigned, so one or both could potentially be back with the team in 2021, but even without those two guys, the Braves have a very good pin. Uh, I think You see Melanson come back. That would be my choice. You know, Melanson was on a huge contract coming over from the Giants. So – you know, everybody wants to make as much money as they possibly can, but because of that huge deal that he had with the Giants, I think you could probably get a reasonable deal from Martin Melanson at this stage in his career. He was he's been a very good closer for a year and a half. You also have Will Smith. You also have the guys that kind of stepped up through last year. You had Mentor who pitched really well. Tyler Matzik was a great bond last year. So the Braves bullpen seems to still be in a good in good shape, but you would like one more. Melanson or Green or just somebody coming back to just that one more piece to make sure that you uh, you, we did lose Darren O'Day and I know people just will take one moment of silence for Darren O'Day All right, now we can move on but so Darren O'Day's gone but after that most of the guys are back uh, except for Green and Melanson and hopefully the Braves will bring at least one of those guys back. The strangest decision that the Braves have made this offseason is that they uh, they non-tendered Adam Duvall he was set to make around 4 to $4.5 million in arbitration this year, and they just said, no, you can go. Uh, he is still a free agent. So the Braves' starting left fielder from last year uh, was not worth $4 million, but somehow Drew Smiley with two Ys is worth 11 Um, When I said that some of this doesn't make sense, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So he's still out there. There's been talk that maybe – Duvall could come back, you know, I don't know, that, that's very confusing, you know, a lot of the the fans that just have gotten, they've fallen in love with this team in the last couple of years and don't really understand baseball, they would just say, well, what about Drew Waters, I've been hearing about him, just plug him in, yeah, that's not always how that works, so I think the Braves would like to slow down a little bit with Drew Waters, they didn't really have a a, a season in the minor leagues, they didn't, not really, they did not have a minor league season last year, so I think he is very young, um, so for his development, it would be better to give him a little bit more time, so I could see the Braves bringing Duvall back uh, on, on, you know, a one-year deal. I don't know at this point if Alex is going to be hesitant to just give him one year and four million, because that's probably what he could have about had him for to start with, um, but the Duvall decision really comes down to the biggest decision that's still on, the, on, on track for the Braves right now, and that's I think something I should get some credit for because I've gone this long without talking about Marcelo Ozuna, but now that's where we're going to end today's conversation. Not just the Braves conversation, but the whole podcast is just going to wrap up here because not, I don't want to be overly, overly dramatic about this, but if the Braves don't bring back Ozuna or find someone, and I don't think there's any free agent out there right now who would be a someone that could do what Ozuna did last year and would project to do this year. That's not my job to figure that out, by the way. That's AA's job. But if the Braves don't bring back Ozuna, I don't want to hear Alex Anthopoulos talking about shopping on any aisle. I don't want to hear Alex Anthopoulos talking about any – our goal is to win a World Series. If your goal is to win the World Series – You re-sign Marcelo Zuna. But he can't play left, and we don't have the DH this year. Well, first of all, I think you're going to end up with the DH this year, but so what? So what if he can't play left field? He was bad in left field. He's a very bad outfielder. He's probably as bad in left field as I would be. But you know what? He rakes, and he makes your best player, Freddie Freeman, a lot better. Marcelo Zuna, if you look at the numbers – He had a case for MVP last year, and the only reason that he didn't get more talk about being MVP is he was hitting behind the MVP, and I think you could pretty much say that without Marcelo Zuna hitting behind Freddie Freeman last year, Freddie Freeman doesn't win the MVP, so I don't really know what we're doing here. He does suck in left, but you've got Pache in center, you've got Acuna in right, I feel like a church league softball coach could figure out how to handle this, okay? For one year, the runs he's gonna get you at the plate are gonna exceed the defensive issues. Plus, after he hits in the seventh or eighth inning, you pull him out of the game, you put Ender Enciarte in there, and now all of a sudden, you have somebody that can play in the most critical moments of the game in the late innings. You've got a better defensive setup in the outfield anyway. Or you figure out how to get rid of Ender and you bring back Adam Duvall for that part. You know, I it just doesn't seem to be that complicated. And yet the Braves seem to make it very, very complicated. Not to mention that making a defensive substitution late in the game makes a lot of sense because you actually are going to have to pitch hit for the pitchers again at this point. So you're going to need double switches. You're going to need to be able to do all of that. I, I just don't know why we haven't made this deal. You know, I I, I saw numbers early in the offseason that were like, you know, Ozuna's wanting, you know, four or five years, $100 million. Okay, listen, I'm telling you right now, if it's four for 80, let's do it. Sign it. Let's go home. Ozuna's 31 years old. Okay, 31 years old for a guy that hits the way he hits. Who will not have to play the outfield starting in 2022. And he is going to be able to hit. I don't know if any of you guys saw this, but I think David Ortiz was still like, he's playing in Japan or something. Or maybe it was Manny Ramirez. He's like 50 something years old playing in, in in the Dominican League or something. And he can still rake. You know why? Because until Ted Williams probably went into that uh to a wheelchair, he could probably still hit. Now, he couldn't go play the field. He couldn't even run the bases at that point. But I, I tell you, he could probably square up a fastball. No kidding. These guys that can hit, Chipper Jones, who's coming back now as a as a uh, a batting instructor or a, 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 a hitting uh, consultant, I think is the exact title. Chipper Jones can go up there and have a major league at bat two days. I promise you. So Marcel Ozuna's ability to hit is not going anywhere. He already can't play the outfield. So you know exactly what you're getting. And in today's market, if if Drew Spiley with two Ys is worth $11 million for one season, then you cannot tell me Marcel Ozuna is not worth 20. There's just no way that you can explain that. Now, I've also seen numbers in the last couple of days, as the free agent market has continued to play itself out, that saying that four years around 70 or 75, which in my mind, that's a steal. I I just don't know what we're doing. So next year, you would be set up for Azuda to be your DH, Drew Waters to play in left field, and, <laughs> and I'm... <laughs> And then you basically, you, you, you're you going to win the second of four straight World Series in that situation. That's my opinion. I don't understand why this is not done. I feel like Alex has done so much right. But sometimes it seems like the easiest thing to do is the thing he struggles with the most. And for me, with Ozuna's age, with his production last year, with how well he fit into the team, this doesn't seem like it would be that difficult. Now, I read a Mark Bowman article earlier today that talked a lot about how there's a lot of uncertainty with the Braves' payroll moving forward because while it had been going up year after year after year consistently, uh, that obviously after COVID is in question. And so there's really not a whole lot of way to project what the the salary, or not the salary cap, because there's not a salary cap, but what their budget's going to be in 22 and 23 and 24. And you're about to have Acuna and Albi start making like legitimate money on their contracts. You've got Freed and Soroka that are going to need to be signed in the next few years. So I do understand that there is a long-term planning aspect of this. The problem is the rhetoric that we have to listen to from Alex is we can shop on any aisle and we are playing for a World Series. At some point, we have to pull that trigger. Uh, we talked about it last year. I've talked about it on the podcast with Jeremy. At some point, now is the future, and at some point, you have to make that one deal that puts you over the top, and we were so close last year. I mean, we were within, what, 10 ounce, 12 ounce of, of going to the World Series last year, so it's time. This is the time because when you do have to start paying Soroka and Freed and you're going to have to make a decision about Dansby and then ultimately you're going to be around to where Pache and all these guys are getting contracts. When, when you start getting to that point, you're not going to be able to afford this team. And then if your payroll is not going to be Dodger-esque, you're going to have to make some, bad, you know, some decisions that fans aren't going to like because you're going to have to see guys that you really like go out the door. I mean, we're not going to exactly be the Cleveland Indians, but you're going to have some really talented guys that you're not able to hold on to if the payroll doesn't go up significantly in the next three or four years. That said, if we've won two World Series in the next four years, we're all going to feel a heck of a lot better about that. So the only way I'm going to change my mind is that if in the next day or two we hear that Azuna gets like five years, 125 from Tampa or Boston. Because those seem to be the other two teams that are being talked about. Now let me just say Tampa's not doing five for one twenty-five. But if 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 it's four or even five years at around twenty a year, I'm gonna lose my mind. And I'll be honest, and this this is gonna be evidence against me, but I am going to find out where AA lives and I am gonna go do something. I'm not gonna hurt anybody, but I mean I am gonna like salt his yard or uh throw eggs or poop or something at this man's house because that's a that's a good deal. Twenty million dollars for the next four or five years for Marcelo Zuna hitting behind Freddie Freeman in the middle of what will be one of the best lineups in all of baseball. You have to do this. If you're gonna say you're gonna win, you have to do this. If you're saying we can shop on any aisle, then prove it. If you can pay Drew Smiley with two wise eleven million dollars, find twenty million for Marcelo Zuna. Or at this point, stop making the stupid Drew Smiley deals. Like if, if that's what you're telling me, we talked about the rotation earlier. We've got Wilson. We've got Wright. We've got all of these other guys like Tuki that have never really worked out. If you're telling me we signed Drew Smiley for $11 million and $11 million of Drew Smiley's money cost us Marcelo Zuna, I will lose my ever loving mind. It's been 26 years <laughs> since 1995. 26 years. It's time to win it. That's it. It's not time to win a playoff series. We did that. It's it's not time to go to the NLCS. We did that. It's time to to get to the World Series, win the World Series, and be the best team in baseball and deliver a championship back to this town because that's what we need. That's it. And so as I finish up today's podcast, I'm just going to leave you with that. There is nothing short of a World Series that should be acceptable for the talent and the team that has been put on the field this year, and it's missing that one piece. And sure, we could go into the season, we could re-sign Duval, we could still have a pretty good team. If anybody says anything, anything about Nick Markakis, I will lose my mind. But we, we can just piece it together and then see if we can pick a piece off at the trading deadline. You know who doesn't do that? Teams that win the World Series. The Astros don't play that way. Red Sox a couple years ago didn't play that way. (laughs) The news just came out today. Uh, The Dodgers just signed Trevor Bauer to a three-year, like $125 million contract. That's who we're competing with, folks. So if they can pay $40 million a year for Trevor Bauer, we have to be able to pay $20 million for Ozuna. And that's it. That's it. Because this is the test. Alex talks a good game, and he's done a lot of things right, but at the end of the day, it's time to put up or shut up. Write the check, sign the man, and let's go win us a World Series. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend. The Super Bowl's this weekend. Somebody's going to win. I don't know who it's going to be, but there you go. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening, and as always, go dogs.